Yep, we're good. Welcome. Um, my name is Mike Angel. I am the rector of the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion, and welcome to the third installment of our conversation about immigration and the 2020 election. Uh, this is a conversation that has been sponsored by a number of different organizations in the St. Louis area, including the Episcopal Church of the Holy Communion, where I am, um, the Episcopal Diocese of Missouri, the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics at Washington University, Interfaith Partnership of Greater St. Louis, the Jewish Community Relations Council of St. Louis, and the St. Louis Interfaith Committee on Latin America. Um, we're just so glad to have you with us today for this important conversation in this important last week before the election. Uh, and before we get started, uh, the Reverend Jim Poinsett from Interfaith Partnership will open us with a prayer. Great. Thank you, Mike, and welcome everyone uh, to this evening and this important conversation. Uh, I'm Jim Poinsett, uh, as Mike said, and I am the executive director of the Interfaith Partnership of Greater St. Louis. That's my day job, uh, but I am also a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. And the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, uh, not a sacred text, but also has a book of confessions. And I wanted to share an excerpt of one of our confessions, the Confession of Belhar, uh, and we'll set the context uh, tonight as people of faith come together and talk about uh, our role in elections and this uh, important issue of immigration. I invite you to hear these words, but listen for the way they resonate with your own uh, faith tradition. From the Confession of Belhar, we believe that God is the one who wishes to bring about justice and true peace among people. We believe that God in a world of injustice and amenity is in a special way the God of the destitute, the poor, and the wronged. We believe that God brings justice to the oppressed and gives bread to the hungry. We believe that God frees the prisoner and restores sight to the blind. We believe that God supports the downtrodden, protects the stranger, helps orphans and widows, and blocks the path of the ungodly. We believe that the church must witness against and strive against any form of injustice so that justice may roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We believe that the church, as the possession of God, must stand where the Lord stands, namely against injustice and with the wronged. We believe that the church must witness against all powerful and privileged who selfishly seek their own interests and thus control and harm others. Invite me, invite you to wherever you are to join in a minute med of meditation and prayer as you are comfortable. Creator God, maker of heaven and earth, we use the word invocation as if you were not here or need awakening from slumber. But we know that you were here and aware before we arrived and will remain long after we have gone. Under your law, we live. By your will, we govern ourselves. Help us all to be good citizens, to respect neighbors whose views differ from ours, so that without partisan anger, we can meet every challenge and share in every success and be good stewards of our common life together. Creator God, open our eyes so that we see you in the eyes of our immigrant brothers and sisters. Open our ears to hear the cries of your children. God of justice who crosses all boundaries, give us courage to live your law boldly, 
give us the strength to stand with and for your inclusive love and the faith to believe another world is necessary and possible. Let it begin with us. Amen. At this time, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Marie Griffith, who is the head of the uh, Danforth Center for Religion and Politics at Washington University in St. Louis, and she will be guiding our conversation this evening. Dr. Griffith. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you all so much for inviting me to be here and take part in this uh, really important conversation. Before I begin, I just want to respectfully acknowledge that those of us participating from St. Louis are on the traditional ancestral lands of the Osage Nation and other native peoples. The process of knowing and acknowledging the land we stand on is a way of honoring and expressing gratitude for the ancestral people who were on this land before us. The Osage Nation encourages all of us to visit their historic preservation website to learn more about this history and the Osage people. So even as we educate ourselves today about critical issues pertaining to religion, politics, and immigration, we cannot forget that we ourselves are occupiers. Religion and politics have been densely intertwined since the earliest projects of colonization of the Europeans who appropriated these lands. They consistently referred to their uh, conquests as projects of missionization and establishing Christianity to the new world and bringing light to the native peoples whom the Europeans of course saw as pagans. This was a violent version of Christianity as my opening words acknowledged, vastly compounded by the slave trade and long years of enslavement, Jim Crow segregation, and the deeply embedded structural racism that stains and permeates virtually all aspects of American life even today. So we could tell a pretty bleak story of the ravages wrought by religion, particularly Christianity in our country's history. Just as true would be an account of the self-sacrifices, generosity, and healing that religious leaders and people of faith and action have enacted to make amends, to rebuild and rehabilitate the world, to dismantle injustice and ease suffering wherever they find it. I am deeply inspired by those doing that work, people like the interfaith group of clergy who planned today's event and invited our center, an academic center, not a religious one, to collaborate. So what we're here to discuss today is the work of facing some of the pain and injustice of our world, responding to the factors that impel so many people to leave their homes and move to what they hope will be a more hospitable country, a place where strangers will be welcomed. I just wanna pause here and say, I'm seeing a big blank square of Jim Poinsett as the main part of my screen. So I don't know if someone can fix that to, or to gallery view or, or why that is, or maybe it's just my own machine. So I won't worry about it, but I'm just noting that. So I wanna start with a little bit of history. Between 1880 and 1924, 25 million people across many parts of the world left their homes and their families and most of their possessions and everything familiar to them for America, hoping to immigrate. Vast numbers of them were fleeing hunger. 
Others sought refuge from prejudice and discrimination. And many, of course, tracked for days or even weeks across Europe to get to a port city where they could board a ship. Roughly 12 million of these people came through Ellis Island, sometimes up to 6,000 a day going through that famous Great Hall where they had to undergo invasive medical exams and legal interrogations about their reasons for coming to the US and what kind of residents they would be. As Edward Steiner, an Austrian Jewish immigrant uh, wrote in 1906, let no one believe that landing on the shores of the land of the free and the home of the brave is a pleasant experience. It is a hard, harsh fact surrounded by the grinding machinery of the law which sifts, picks, and chooses, admitting the fit and excluding the weak and helpless. And indeed, as we know, not all were warmly welcomed. Most Americans today know that there were deep wells of anti-Irish and anti-Catholic sentiment in 19th century America that persisted well into the 20th century. Nativism, the open preference for white native-born Americans over immigrants, long exhibited itself in open prejudice against Irish Catholics, Asians, Jews, and Italians, among many others. Anti-immigration cartoonists caricatured foreigners as ape-like idiots, thieves, and carriers of poverty and disease. They were illustrated overtaking American institutions and stealing elections, wallowing in drunken heaps, desecrating the Sabbath, taking away jobs from US workers, and bringing false religions and superstition into Protestant America. Whatever they were doing, it was destroying the nation, according to these artists. So all along, there were many who believed US immigration policy was far too lenient and needed tightening. And so it was tightened. Thousands trying to immigrate here were deported for any number of reasons, medical, political, lack of education, mental illness, and more. Federal law banned the so-called feeble-minded uh, from being admitted, and terms like moron, imbecile, and idiot were used as scientific labels to describe various mental deficiencies that warranted deportation. Now is the time to take greater precautions to differentiate between the good and the bad immigrant, said one Ellis Island official. In 1882, the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act became the first major piece of legislation to restrict immigration to the United States. Various amendments and renewals of that act sought to prevent Chinese immigration altogether. And the Chinese who were already in America did not become eligible for citizenship for decades. In 1921, Congress passed the Emergency Quota Act, establishing national immigration quotas for groups it considered undesirable. The Supreme Court ruled in 1923 that South Asian Indians should be classified as non-white and persons from the Indian subcontinent who had already become US citizens through the naturalization process had their citizenship revoked. The Immigration Act of 1924 targeted Southern and Eastern European immigrants, largely Italians and Jews. By contrast, newcomers from Northern Europe, Ireland, and England were favored. And now too, not only Chinese, but all persons were Asia, from Asia were completely excluded from immigrating. 
And uh, the, the State Department even today on its website notes this history and notes that the goal was preserving the racial composition of the nation, the ideal of US homogeneity. Less than a decade later, the Hoover administration drastically reduced immigration again, deporting and forcibly repatriating nearly 2 million Mexican Americans, most of them already naturalized American citizens. And while some of these quotas were challenged in the 1940s, they were resurrected in 1952 in the McCarran-Walter Act. Well, finally, in 1965, the act that is more typically celebrated today took place. And the 40-year-old quota system based on national origins was thoroughly overturned by the Immigration and Nationality Act. This was during Lyndon Johnson's administration and the civil rights movement and the slowly dawning recognition among growing numbers of white Americans of the perniciousness of racism as well as foreign pressures that oppose the discrimination of these immigration laws. So that act, Hart Seller, removed the emphasis on race in America's immigration laws. This is again, 1965, and instead emphasized family reunification, uh, which critics would later come to denounce as chain migration, but family reunification. And they also emphasized professionals with expert skills um, I will note that Congress added an amendment to that law that added sexual deviance as a medical exclusion that would deny entry to immigrants whom they found to exhibit signs of homosexuality. And in fact, that provision remained in place until 1990 when Congress withdrew sexual deviance uh, from that law. So it's not all this happy open uh, history that we think of it. But as we know, the 1965 law has had an enormous impact on the changing ethnic makeup of the country since its passage. So even as the number of immigrants greatly increased, the overwhelming majority of immigrants shifted from Europeans and Canadians to immigrants from Latin America and Hispanic countries and from many different parts of Asia. And so according to the Pew Research Center, in the last half century, since 1965, uh, nearly 59 million immigrants came to the United States, increasing the foreign-born population to 14%. Roughly half of these are Latin American and a quarter of them come from Asia. So projecting ahead at this rate, Pew expects immigrants to account for 88% of the US population increase between 2015 and 2065. And so naturally there are those who do not like these changes and want more restrictions on immigration. Today, a majority of white evangelicals are staunchly among them. Robert Jeffress, who's pastor of the 14,000 member First Baptist Church in Dallas has repeatedly defended the building of a vast wall to keep people out. He says, the, people sa the Bible says, even heaven itself is gonna have a wall around it, he notes. Not everyone is going to be allowed in. And Jeffress is no outlier. The majority of his religious cohort has likewise scoffed at the notion suggested by many on the more uh, liberal or progressive side that Jesus himself was a refugee. 
And so it is instructive, I think, to go back through this past 100 to 150 years and see how the attitudes of Americans, both ordinary citizens and political leaders, have fluctuated and vacillated over time, how nativist leaders have stoked fear and worked successfully to fracture the American people on how to treat strangers foreigners who wish to enter the United States. We've never been without nativism in this country. Attitudes toward immigrants, and, and particularly uh, we should note white attitudes toward brown-skinned immigrants have been charged with suspicion consistently over time. But when it comes to religion, there are other stories to tell. The concept of welcoming the stranger is one that is part of most if not all religious traditions, both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian New Testament stress the ethical importance of welcoming strangers. Uh, one Roman Catholic scholar wrote recently, the Hebrew Bible recognizes that every one of us can be a stranger. And for that very reason, we need to overcome our fear of those who live among us whom we do not know. Probably the best known New Testament passage about strangers is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. This is the passage where Jesus says, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Christianity is a wildly diverse religion with many different interpretations, but this is the crux of Christian teaching, feeding the hungry, caring for the sick and poor, welcoming the stranger. Other religious traditions have their own versions of such teachings to care for others, including outsiders entering one's own community. Judaism teaches that hospitality to strangers is an ethical obligation, a lesson conveyed many times in the Torah, the Talmud, and other Jewish texts. Islam, likewise, requires the generous welcoming of guests and strangers. And if secular humanists uh, have discarded all the trappings of religion that they consider superstition or oppression by patriarchal authorities, responding to the needs and sufferings of strangers is often at the very core of what binds them together in community. So our question tonight is really this, what are the applications of these religious teachings to our politics? What role can congregations play? What role do they have? And this turns out to be a complicated question. Like battles over slavery, and frankly not unrelated to them, battles over migrant outsiders have bitterly divided us for generations and divide us still. The indifference expressed by many Americans to the suffering of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers has been a solid current in our national discourse for well over a century. And so too has its opposite, the impulse to care. And so now I would like to invite our panelists to speak in turn about five to seven minutes each about their own faith communities work with immigrants and what the rest of us can learn from this. And then we're gonna have a conversation and I invite all of you watching this webinar to submit your questions 
so that I can address these to the panelists. So let me briefly introduce our three panelists together and uh, their full bios will be placed in, I believe the chat box, is that where we're placing them or q and I'm not sure, one of those places, uh, Rory will, will tell me. Uh, our first speaker is Rabbi Jill Jacobs, who is the executive director of TRUA, the Rabbinic Call for Human Rights, which trains and mobilizes a network of more than 2,000 rabbis and cantors in their communities to bring a moral voice to human rights in North America, Israel, and the occupied Palestinian territories. She is the author of two books and has been named three times to the forwards list of 50 influential American Jews and many other uh, lists of influence as well. She holds rabbinic ordination and an MA in Talmud from the Jewish Theological Seminary along with other advanced degrees. Our second speaker is Dr. Orlando Espin, who is University Professor Emeritus of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of San Diego. He earned a dual doctorate in systematic and practical theology at the Pontifical Catholic University of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Dr. Espin has, has specialized in the study of popular religion, as well as in theological study of culture, interculturality, and traditioning. He's the founder and former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hispanic Latino Theology and the author of, or editor of 12 important books. Uh, he has received several national and international awards, including the prestigious John Courtney Murray Award from the Catholic Theological Society of America. Our third speaker tonight is the Reverend Dr. Ben Sanders III, who is Assistant Professor of Theology and Ethics at Eden Theological Seminary here in St. Louis. He holds a PhD in Religious and Theological Studies from the University of Denver and Isleth School of Theology. He was ordained at New Hope Baptist Church in Denver, a historically black church duly aligned with the National Baptist and American Baptist churches and served as associate minister there before coming to Eden. He has written on the pervasive role of white supremacy in American society and the church and regularly speaks and preaches on these topics and is completing a, a book on this as well. So my thanks to all three of you and Reverend uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Jacobs, we will begin with you. Thank you so much, Professor Griffith and Maharat Pigarnis for organizing this panel and um, for your really comprehensive, short but very comprehensive history of immigration in America. I wanna start with my family story and then I'll talk a bit about what TRUA does and why we see immigration as a Jewish issue. So my family, like many American Jewish families, came to the United States at the beginning of the 20th century from Eastern Europe, from Lithuania and Ukraine, what are now Lithuania and Ukraine. And one of the stories in my family that may or may not be true as many of our, our stories are, but one of the stories in my family is that my great-grandfather and his father landed in the United States on the day in 1901, on the day that McKinley was assassinated, and then my great-great-grandfather turned to his son and said, it's too dangerous here, I'm going back, and went back to Lithuania. Now, I don't know if that part's true, but what I do know is that my great-grandfather was in the United States, and the rest of his family did not come to the United States, and of course, um, at a certain point, um, nobody ever heard from them again, and they were presumed, 
presumed to be killed during the Holocaust. That is not an unusual family story for, for Jews in America. Of course, Jews in America came from all different kinds of places at different times, but there was a, a large wave of Jews coming from Germany in the middle of the 19th century and then from Eastern Europe at the beginning of the 20th century, which as Professor Griffith said, led ultimately to the 1924 immigration laws, which were intended to prevent certain people who were considered undesirable from coming into the United States, including Jews, including Italians, um, and others from what were considered less desirable parts of, of Europe. So, um, so that's how my family came here. And like I said, for many Jewish families, the fact that we were able to come to the United States before 1924 meant that we are here now, that generations of our families are here now. And for many of those who are unable to come once the borders to the United States closed, um, that often meant that, that families were, were killed during the Holocaust. Um, and this is a, a story, very often when we talk about immigration in Jewish history, we, we talk about that period of immigration to the United States, the big waves of immigration to the United States. But of course, Jews have had the experience throughout history of being refugees, of being kicked out of almost every country where we lived at different points and always looking for a safe place to be. Um, so that experience is very, very deep in the Jewish psyche. There's many, many Jewish texts that talk about our obligations to strangers, to sojourners, to immigrants and refugees. But I'll just mention one, which is probably a familiar story to anybody who um, is familiar with the Bible. And that is the story of Sodom or Sodom as it's said in English. Now, there's lots of things that get said about what the sin of Sodom was, but I'll tell you what the traditional Jewish understanding of that story is, according to later biblical texts, and especially according to the rabbis of the Talmud. They very strongly believe that the sin of Sodom was their inhospitality to travelers, that they made up lots of laws, um, incredibly cruel laws, to prevent any foreigners from coming into their city. For example, one of the, the moments of cruelty was that when a, a, somebody would come from the outside, everybody would take a coin and they would write their own name on the coin and they would give that coin to the person. Sounds nice, right? You're giving uh, tzedakah or charity to, to somebody who's coming from elsewhere, but no merchants in town would accept that those coins for food. So eventually this person who would have a bag full of coins that they couldn't spend would die of hunger, at which point everybody in the town would come and they would all take their coins back and wait for the next person. So it's really the height of cruelty and that's why the rabbis of the Talmud thought the people of Sodom were, um, were punished so harshly. My own organization, Truah, which as you heard, organizes more than 2,000 rabbis and cantors across the US and Canada to work on human rights issues, has been engaged in immigration for certainly more than a decade. And if not, since we first started up 18 years ago. In the past few years, we've particularly been concerned with the attacks on the basic human rights of, of asylum seekers and refugees who are trying to come to the United States. Now, very soon after the Holocaust, the, uh, the convention, the International Convention on Refugees was passed in 1951, very much as a direct world response to what happened to Jews during the Holocaust. 
and it laid out a series of rights that people who are seeking refuge have. And the United States, which of course is a signatory on that, was throughout Republican and Democratic administrations, this is not a political issue, respecting those rights, which include the right to seek asylum. So what's use, what it normally happens, or what is supposed to happen, is that if you land in the United States and you are seeking asylum because it's not safe for you to be in the country that you came from, you declare that you're seeking asylum, and then you get a, a date for a court case. Almost everybody shows up for that case, and you have a chance to, to prove um, to, to prove your right to asylum. The Trump administration has completely violated this policy and is making asylum seekers sit in outside of the United States in Mexico waiting for their asylum um, plan. So I was there, we've taken, Troy's taken a number of groups of rabbis to the border. I was there most recently, just about a year ago, last October, with a group of um, a couple of dozen rabbis and senior Jewish leaders. And we went to the border in El Paso and both went to, uh, met with people in El Paso and then also traveled into Mexico to see the situation. And what we saw were that there are migrant camps on the US border because the United States is not allowing people to seek asylum in the country as has been the policy uh, for um, really for, for generations. Um, and I'll just say that there was a moment when I woke up in the hotel room to the sound of hail pounding across against the windows. And you know, it's kind of nice to be in a warm, cozy hotel room just watching the hail outside early in the morning. But then I remembered that the day before I had seen families with small kids living in tents just on the border, waiting for their number to be called, at which point they can go up uh, the, their number is called on Facebook, like you really can't make this up. You check Facebook, you see if your number has come up, has come up. you go to the line, and then you might get um, a date to come apply for asylum, but in the meantime, you have to wait in Mexico. So you have families waiting out there for months and months, and now, of course, they're waiting with uh, in, in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so that is, again, this is not a partisan issue, it's not a political issue, it's a human issue, and as a Jew whose own family was able to find refuge here um, and who has deep tradition, who has a deep tradition about our obligation toward the uh, toward people who are coming from outside of our own country, as well as an American with a deep tradition of this being a country where lots and lots of immigrants have fled at different points. Um, this is absolutely against um, any moral, uh, just any moral compass that any of us have. I will end there. Thank you so much. Um, Dr. Espin? Yes, thank you for inviting me. Uh, living next to uh, the most crossed border in the entire world, it is impossible to ignore how artificial borders are and, if, and also how uh, very much migration or immigration runs in both directions. I know many visitors to Southern California visit the northern side of that imaginary line we call the border. And unfortunately, most will never see the same imaginary line from the southern side, where they have planted crosses for each person killed 
by the U.S. Border Patrol in incidents that are all too frequently blamed on the victims. The number of crosses increases every year. My intent here is not to address what the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church uh, might or might not say about immigration, what uh, uh, an occasional or a frequent document, it's really occasional, document might say, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Rather, I hope to raise some questions on what immigration might say about the meaning and consequences of Roman Catholic doctrine. Roman Catholic theological traditions have often spoken of the church as a pilgrim people, a people on the move. These images are not poetic phrases. They indicate a reality that lies at the very foundation of Catholic Christianity. They remind us of some crucial consequences of Jesus's preaching on the reign of God. They point to Christianity's approach approach to an understanding of reality and of its experience of God. Or put differently, it is impossible to be a Catholic and be stuck in the past or in the present. The pilgrim people of God must be living witnesses to the pre precarious and always penultimate quality of all human societies of all human explanations, of all human institutions, and of all human decisions, as well as, as well as of all human expectations. Only God is final and absolute. None of our churches, none of our doctrines, not even our nation are final and absolute. The image of a pilgrim people is not just a poetic phrase, but a doctrinal insight that touches the very core of who we are as a Catholic Christian people. Pilgrimage into the present but still future reign of God is of the very essence of our identity and practice. But can we be on a pilgrimage without ever moving? Can a people move into the future without somehow becoming immigrants into that very future? No one can hope to participate in the reign of God without first admitting that they are immigrants in that reign because no one has a birthright to the, birth, to the reign of God. These are not poetic or homiletic phrases, but explicitly dogmatic statements that are very much that have very much to do with the definition of what we understand to be Christian. Theological reflection on immigration is not just about those who have crossed geographic borders. It is not for those who are pastorally engaged with immigrants and their families. Therefore, can we understand ourselves as church without incorporating immigration into that very understanding? And the answer is no. All Christians claim that only God is God, that only God is absolute. Christians are not into idolatry, or so we claim, or so we claim. But if we debate the issue of uh, immigration, because another uh, of immigration, it's because another decision preceded it 
the decision to establish and recognize borders. And here is the, the real meaty issue. Any border, our local Southern California border, the one with Canada, and every other border between nations anywhere else is an imaginary human creation. Creation did not come packaged with borders. Earth did not evolve with borders. Human decisions made a few rivers and a few mountains into borders. And in other cases, as in our local San Diego case, human decisions made an imaginary line into a border. That is ours, this is yours, that's a border established by human decisions. More precisely, borders are established by decisions made by a handful of humans who have the power to make those decisions and to claim they have the authority to defend them. Established borders are the result of power decisions by the powerful. Regular folks don't create borders. And this reference to dominant asymmetric power must be part of any discussion on borders and immigration. Because immigration wouldn't exist even as a concept without the prior decision of this is a border. But let's think as Christians, how, what do we do with human power decisions that are the cause of thousands of human deaths? How many deaths are too many? Human beings are being killed, hunted, persecuted, separated from their children who are then put into cages. Immigrants are imprisoned, raped, traded as merchandise, and at times treated as slaves or animals because of earlier human decisions that established an imaginary line called a border. And now that human decision, it is claimed, has to be defended and protected at any cost, including the cost of human lives. Are the human decisions that created and still maintain borders absolute decisions? Are these decisions so extraordinarily necessary or absolute that human lives can or should be sacrificed to maintain the borders created by a handful of powerful human beings? To defend borders born of conquest, must we continue to sacrifice humans? Who, may I ask, can claim that human politicians can make decisions that not even God would make, decisions that are blatantly against the most basic of God's commandments, to love every neighbor as we love ourselves. Human persons, the living images of God, endowed by their creator with a dignity that no human law can give or take away, are persecuted because they have dared cross an imaginary line established by politicians through the use of force and solely for the furtherance of human political and economic interests. Have we endowed a human decision by human politicians with an absolute character that can only be claimed by and for God? Can one be Christian and not see the transparently clear idolatry 
in much of today's debate regarding immigration? Or do we think that some idols are okay as long as they are ours and benefit us? This is not politics. This is basic Christianity and certainly basic Catholic Christianity. This has to do with our response to the gospel. This is basic Christianity that idolatry is not acceptable. Idolatry is to claim the quality of absoluteness for what is no more than a human creation. To put a human law or a human decision above real respect for shared humanity, a shared humanity that is God's creation and God's image is not acceptable. And even less acceptable when adherence to a human political decision requires the infliction of death or suffering on other human persons. We cannot in good conscience think that this is doctrinally or morally irrelevant or secondary. That we not commit idolatry, that we be immigrants toward the reign of God, and thereby that we affirm immigration as an indispensable component of the church's identity and reality. All of these are non-negotiable. But how do we let these very fundamental doctrines shape the mission and daily reality of Catholic institutions. I suggest that the only way of including the immigrant, I'm sorry, I suggest that the only way is by including the immigrant because without the immigrant, there is no real inclusion of immigration. How we include the immigrant and the immigrant's experience of and perspective on immigration and not somebody else's cannot be achieved by exclusively or mainly listening to those who benefit from the existence of borders. We must listen to those whose lives are sacrificed daily before we listen to those who benefit from this sacrifice or who justify the deaths of thousands. Why? Because among Christians there is no question that salvation came and still comes from a once unknown crucified peasant and not from those who legally condemned him to death because he broke the law. If, pilgrim, if being pilgrim is of the essence of Catholic Christianity, then the inclusion of immigrants and their experience cannot be taken as secondary, as cosmetic, or as an excuse for one more committee on, or one more statement for instant inter-institutional marketing purposes, or as a way of showing off how many church documents we can quote from while continuing to live as if we hadn't read or understood any of it. We cannot continue to cover up our ethical mediocrity and our idolatries just to make us feel good. We must honestly wrestle with the facts and with the demands of the gospel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Sanders? Good evening, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. I am um, humbled to be uh, in the company of uh, my fellow panelists, as well as uh, Professor Griffin, whose work um, I've got to know and respect very much. I wanted to begin my um, 
my sharing with you all tonight by reciting a poem with you um, that uh, I've been thinking about um, and some work that I've been doing that is related, I think, to um, how it is that uh, my community, uh, I consider myself to be uh, a member of and a product of uh, the historic Black church in America, how my community is relating itself to integration. The poem is a piece from um, the famous poet and writer Maya Angelou, and it is inspired um, by an earlier poem. And uh, some of you may know that um, in 1895, Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote an incredibly um, important and, um, and widely known poem called We Wear the Mask. Well, uh, Maya Angelou uh, sort of, she riffs on this poem uh, in writing um, her own reflection on the mask. And I wanna um, invite us to consider the role of the mask in, um, in how it is that black people come to relate ourselves to borders and to issues of immigration. So to begin, here's the poem. When I think about myself, I almost laugh myself to death. My life has been one great big joke, a dance that's walked, a song that spoke. I laugh so hard, ha ha, I almost choke when I think about myself. 70 years in these folks' world, the child I works for calls me girl. I say, ha, 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 yes, ma'am, for working's sake. I'm too proud to bend and too poor to break. So I laugh until my stomach ache when I think about myself. My folks can make me split my side. I laugh so hard, ha, ha, I nearly died. The tales they tell sound just like lying. They grow the fruit, but eat the rind. Hmm, ha, I laugh <laughs> until I start to cry. When I think about myself and my folks and the children. My father sit on benches, their flesh count every plank. The slats leave dents of darkness deep in their withered flank and they gnarled like broken candles, all waxed and burned profound. They say, but sugar, it was our submission that made your world go round. There in those pleated faces, I see the auction block, the chains and slavery's cockles, the whip and lash and stock. My fathers speak in voices that shred my fact and sound. They say, but sugar, it was our submission that made your world go round. They laugh to conceal their crying. They shuffle through their dreams. They stepped and fetched a country and wrote the blues in screams. I understand their meaning. It could and did derive from living on the edge of death. They kept my race alive by wearing the mask. The mask is not a literal object, um, at least not in this case, literal objects, literal masks play important roles in black culture as well. But the mask as it's spoken about here in Angelou's poem is a metaphor for various modes of social and existential concealment that have been essential to black people surviving in America. The mask has been hush harbors and spirituals filled with hidden revolutionary meanings. The mask has been deference in the context of Jim Crow culture so that one's children could eat. 
The mask has been obedience to law enforcement officers who may very well kill anyway. The mask has been code switching in professional spaces dominated by white culture. For centuries, the mask has helped Blacks survive societies dominated by white supremacy and characterized by anti-Black violence. Regardless of its historical context or particular social function, the mask plays the ethically complex role of concealing the feelings, memories, and wisdoms Black people express and recall in order to protect self and loved ones from white violence. As such, the mask is, it doesn't symbolize black weakness. Instead, it implicates the refusal of white society to imagine blacks as anything other than a problem to be disciplined and controlled. In its concealing and protective qualities, the mask is um, similar to uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's classic notion of double consciousness. Uh, double consciousness for Du Bois was about analyzing the dehumanizing impact of white culture. Um, and, um, and he did so by imagining whites as imagining blacks as a problem, right? Uh, he famously uh, imagines um, a white person asking him, how does it feel to be a problem? But the, the mask signifies the knowledge and wisdom that black people have um, um, that they keep to themselves, that we keep to ourselves in order to survive. And here's why I think this is um, significant and relevant to the, the, the notion of, uh, to the topic of immigration and to notions of borders. Um, the majority of black people in this country trace their lineage to persons uh, who were forced to migrate to the United States as part of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, of course, trace is a is a is a, uh, a kind of a tricky word to use here. Uh, it, it could be argued that it's just frankly inaccurate um, because the work of tracing is complicated by a lack of birth records and by um, traditions that have ripped black families apart in the name of, um, of maintaining something like a wholeness um, and imagined wholeness in society. Um, what black people have um, done and what I perceive black people as doing in relation to immigration and in relation to borders is um, uh, largely um, functioning inside of the confines of the mask in ways that um, I think and, um, and I would like to, um, to resist. Um, uh, keep us from really important alliances uh, with folks who are being dehumanized in contemporary settings um, by um, um, immigration policies of the current administration. Um, Black people know what it's like to have your family ripped apart in the name of structural power. Black people know what it's like to have um, your family, your culture, your religion, um, your values um, um, stopped and, um, and, and deconstructed violently at the site of, of, of an artificial border. Uh, we have also, in the name of survival for generations, functioned inside of a mask and kept many of our deepest feelings close to ourselves um, um, because we have learned over time that um, sharing our true feelings too widely could be dangerous for the community. Uh, and so um, the masks for me represents um, uh, uh, an apparatus of survival and also um, a hurdle to full freedom. Uh, and so there is some tension there. And I think it's necessary that there, that there be tension here because on the one hand, black people are brought to this country through forced migration. And on the other hand, 
black people are invited, black people are um, um, are, are uh, often invited, I should say, uh, to participate um, in supporting immigrant communities who are being dehumanized in ways that mirror uh, social and historical realities that we're far too familiar with. And so I'd like tonight to think about the mask uh, as a metaphor, again, for what black folk have used to survive, but also um, as an apparatus that may be keeping us from living into the fullness of what it means um, um, to bear witness to a God who has promised us um, th that there's more than our suffering to be had if we're just honest about who we truly, truly are as, as, as the folk. Um, I'll stop there um, because I wanna make sure we have time for questions and, and to, to converse together. Thank you so much. Yes, and if the panelists, if you wanna go ahead and turn your cameras back on, um, and we'll be visible here for these final minutes. Um, thank you all for these very, very powerful and very personal uh, reflections and, and presentations. Um, we did get a question uh, in our Q&A. So thanks to Joyce Bell for this one. And she asked that about nativism, if it runs so deeply in their, our history, is there any chance for the American people to see themselves as multiracial and everyone having an equal opportunity? And to me, there's a question about hope and maybe we can think about it in broader terms in, in terms of hope. And an hour is too short, Rory, but so we don't have a lot of time. I'd just like to ask maybe each of you to speak just a, a very few sentences about what gives you hope because I think, um, Whatever, whatever political side people are on right now, we all could use some hope. So Rabbi Jacobs, um, could I start with you? Sure, thank you for that question. It's very true that we've seen the same anti-immigration rhetoric throughout US history, uh, just used against different people at different times. And it's also true that the United States is an experiment in a multi-racial, multi-ethnic democracy. It's um, it's not obvious that a country like this could succeed. And in so many ways, it's not. But I believe that we have to have hope because what's the other option? The other option is saying, no, we're just gonna be stuck being xenophobic and racist and everything else forever. I'm not willing to accept that possibility. And so where I see hope is people who are really stepping up, especially during the last four years, the strong, the people who are protesting the separation of families who are protesting the immigration laws of this administration, perhaps people who had never paid attention before, but are stepping up. And my hope is that that political engagement is going to continue no matter what it is that happens on Tuesday and beyond. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Spin. Uh, you're muted, sir. I think you're still muted. There we go. Okay, um, I, I think nativism, as it has played out in American history, is just one of the masks, talking about uh, masks, one of the masks of racism. And uh, it has, it's that mask that is applied in reference to the immigrant. Um, but, and sometimes even when the immigrant was uh, themselves, uh, uh, you know, as you, white European as can be, uh, you still had the Northern European referring to the Mediterranean Europeans as they are really not white, uh, really. Uh, so it really is uh, a way of talking racism. And the only way we're going to go beyond 
nativism and the racism that is really its root and main trunk, um, it's going to be if um, we start uh, realizing that everyone has to um, dare look at themselves. As long as the uh, uh, white population does not recognize that there are systemic injustices because of white privilege, and it's a recognition that it's not mental, it's a recognition that it has to be put out in, in deeds, in, in uh, changes of attitudes, et cetera, and how we raise our kids. Until that happens, uh, the rest of us can uh, scream, say, talk, uh, do whatever, and little will, will change. Maybe something will change right now, but soon we're going to go sliding back into the same thing. I was marching in the 1960s for civil rights. Really? And now I'm in my 70s and I still have to march for the same? Whatever happened, we slid back uh, because we just, uh, you know, uh, forgot to recognize that the trunk and the roots uh, require that they be acknowledged. Um, and maybe if we are really into courage, we need to start pulling out the trunk and the roots. Mm. invent another country. Mm, thank you. Wow. And Dr. Sanders? I, I, find, um, I find hope um, on the margins of society, particularly in the places where young people are rethinking identity, lots, lots of different types of identities in ways that instruct us, I think, about, how to, about borders. Um, you know, uh, liberation theology has been trying to get us to think like this for some years now, right? If you look on the margins, you, you will find resources um, in communities of folks who know what it's like to exist in moments of hopelessness and social and economic and cultural and political historical moments of hopelessness, right? The, the challenge for us is, do we have the courage to look there, to look away from the places that would teach us that nativism is, is a necessity um, that that uh, for for American identity, right? Do we have the courage to look to the places that have overcome nativism through creativity, through um, um, through through um, fragmentation, um, through collaboration, through cooperation, through all of the things that oppose um, the sort of white supremacist logic of power, predictability, and control, right? Um, so some of, I mean, we're we're at a turning point here, right? In COVID, we're all sitting, you know, in various ways in isolation. Um, inside of the country that claims to be the most, the richest and most powerful in the history of the world, right? So, I mean, there's, there's, something, there's something terribly paradoxical, I think, and ironic about that. And this, to me, strikes me as a moment for us to learn to hope as marginalized folks have hoped in a long time, right? Hope in the God that you meet in the spaces where you, you, you cannot deny the limitations of your own abilities, right? Um, we have an opportunity for that right now as a country to look at what we don't know, to look at what we can't figure out, and to learn from folks who have, you know, played jazz and the blues and constructed hip hop out of what they had on hand and have created whole alternative ways of being uh, through that. That's where I get my hope um, from communities on the margins that are creative, that are collaborative, that are artistic. Beautiful. 
Well, we have more questions, but I'm afraid uh, we seem to be out of time. So I hope we will continue uh, having these conversations about this really critical issue. And um, thank you all again. I think Alyssa, are you going to close us out? Good evening, yes. Um, first of all, uh, my name is Alyssa Banford. Um, I work with the Jewish Community Relations Council. And um, I actually am wondering if we could take um, another few minutes and, and just answer another question or two. I think there's just some incredible stuff here. If, if you're willing to do it, I, I would love to do that. As I, as I said to Rory, I, an hour just turned out not to be enough and all these comments right. are so rich. So, um, well, you know, one question that I saw um, from uh, Reverend Mike Angel has to do with really thinking about what's propelling um, so many immigrants across the border right now. So maybe if we can come down to some of the really concrete issues facing us today. Um, and if, you know, one or more of you could just speak to the actual injustice that are propelling so many people coming from Central America in particular into Mexico, coming into the US. Um, I don't know which one of you may want to speak to that. Dr. Espin, you talked a lot about that border. So maybe you could, you could say a few words uh, to educate us. Yeah, especially since if you remember it was the, uh, the last few months of uh, 2018 and the beginning of 2019, we had a huge caravan uh, coming from Central America, uh, specifically from Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, crossed all of Mexico. And when they got to uh, the border, uh, all hell broke loose. And I'm married to somebody uh, who uh, um, did an outstanding, and I'm not the, the only one saying that, uh, the state of California and uh, San Diego and Tijuana and, and all kinds of NGOs as well are saying that, who led the response uh, to what are we going to do uh, with these people who don't have where to live, who, what to eat, uh, and they come with diseases, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it was, let's do this. And I don't know uh, how they all uh, arranged this, but they had uh, uh, incredible assistance from all kinds of organizations from across the country. Um, but more important, one thing that was learned was that within the caravan, lest we romanticize, within the caravan, there were other caravans that kind of pulled slightly to one side or pulled up front or pulled in the back because even everyone fleeing from uh, injustices uh, was not treated justly by those who were also fleeing like them. Mm -hmm. So if they were, and people forget that in Latin America, there were millions of African slaves. Uh, I was born in the Caribbean, so I can tell you a few stories about that one. Um, and if they were black descendant or at least were mixed race, uh, they were not treated the same way. Women were not treated the same way as men. Uh, LGBTQ people were not treated the same way as straights, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there were 
caravans formed in order to protect themselves from the rest of the caravan. And that says a lot about the need to change the tape and also about a very important uh, set of injustices. It's not just everyone is hungry. It's just that among the hungry, some are supposed to be uh, having first access uh, and others are supposed to be having last access, etc. So uh, I don't know how to um, synthesize this, but uh, it's that uh, injustice and, and, and humans being inhumane, it's not just those that are, uh, you know, at the top of the ladder, it's that we have learned, we have consumed that set of prejudices and are unaware that we repeat them among ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that is a very big problem. Okay, thank you. Um, Linda Zaragoza asks a question that's related to this. And Rabbi Jacobs, I see, I'll direct this to you because I see you want to get in on that too. Um, she asks about the implications just of the growing changes in demographics within our nation, of the growing you know, Latino population, not just at the borders, but throughout the country. Are attitudes changing? Are, are they broadening? Um, are we uh, becoming more accepting of diversity, she asks, as a reality. So Rabbi Jacobs, I don't know if you can tie that into what you were going to say, um, but please, please go ahead. Sure. Um, so first of all, I am not a demographer. I'm not a political scientist. I'm not going to make huge uh, predictions about what voting patterns are going to look like in, I don't know, 2028 or something like that. So uh, I'm sure somebody else is writing that article. But I'll just say that um, historically, we've had waves of immigrants who have come into the United States, often concentrating in one or more cities at the beginning, um, like Chinese immigrants in San Francisco, Jewish immigrants in New York, Italian immigrants in New York, and in our, in our families, grow up and, and move to different places. And it's true that the demographic the demographics of our different places um, change and that will continue to happen with each new wave of immigrants, um, presumably. In terms of whether we're becoming more accepting, I would like to, to hope that we will become more accepting. Unfortunately, we've also seen uh, right now we have a, a president in particular who stokes hatred against immigrants or anybody who's not white or anybody who's not Christian or just anybody who's not anybody who's not white Christian and born in America and male, I would say. Um, so that is creating, uh, that's really inflaming some of the both rhetoric and then actual violence by white nationalists um, who are, um, who are looking for support for theories that say that white people are being replaced, um, as we saw really clearly in the Charlottesville riots two years ago, that Jews will not replace us, this idea of the replacement theory. So we see that kind of hatred coming up as a reaction to America becoming more diverse. And the role of all of us, particularly as religious people, is to teach principles that will help to, to stop that hatred. Um, so, and then the, the other thing I'll just say, you know, also I'm not a, uh, somebody who specializes in uh, all the causes of, of immigration, but people 
most people don't leave the country that they're born in unless they really have to. Um, and most people don't come, don't go somewhere as a refugee, certainly unless it's really, really not safe to stay where you are. And so we're seeing right now the impact of climate change, and that's only going to get worse. Um, we're seeing the impact of different economic policies, some of which are ones that the United States has, um, that are, are really because of the United States economic policies that are having negative effects in Central America. So we're seeing, so we do have to look at the causes of of immigration and of the wave of refugees, as well as what happens when people get here. Of course, we have obligations toward people once they're seeking refuge, but we also have to look at some of the larger forces and see what we can do to make situations more just for everybody around the world. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to turn to you, Dr. Sanders, in just a minute, but just, uh, Rabbi, just something that you said that I think is so important to stress. People don't just immigrate because, you know, they feel like it on a whim. Uh, usually circumstances are very bad. They can be desperate. And, you know, this was what part of when I did the, the longer history of all of this, this has always been true. You know, people fled to come to the U.S., um, not to have a vacation, but because things were so horrible for them. Back in Europe, there were pogroms, there was famine, there were all kinds of terrible conditions that propelled so many people to come here then. And that's still true today. And if we can keep that in mind, I, you know, a greater degree of empathy and just, you know, attempts to understand where people are coming from, I think would, is so needed right now. Um, Dr. Sanders? Yeah, I just I was um, I was so taken by what both Rabbi Jill uh, and and what um, Dr. Espine um, uh, said. Um, uh, Jill made me think about, uh, or, or rather, helped me to remember uh, that in various conversations over the past six eight months, right. Um, so this is kind of inside of the COVID window, right? Um, as Black people are inside with their thoughts and feelings and emotions, um, I have had conversations and have read articles about Black people who are seriously considering or have migrated out of the United States to somewhere else, right? Um, so, so as we talk about sort of migration patterns and as we try to track the way that white supremacy continues to establish certain uh, forms of immigration policy in the United States, I think it's just absolutely critical um, to start to, to pull some of these threads together, right? Um, um, the the, the anti-European anti immigrant threads, um, um, the anti-Brown threads, the anti-Black threads and hold them together because, um, you know, Dr. Espine called our attention to something that um, is, is not often said in spaces like this, right? Inside of the caravan, inside of the folks who were marginalized, who are who are searching for a place to exist, who are searching for a place to exist well, there was spirit, I'm gonna, you know, put this in my own words, there was spiritual work to be done. Right, Dr. Espine talked about the tape, right? But there's real, um, um, Dr. Griffith, you just finished talking about empathy and compassion, right? Um, but there's a, there has to be um, an actual decision. And this is why I think um, my comment earlier about looking to the margins as sites of wisdom, there have to be actual decisions mm -hmm. um, that begin to reshape how we, right? In the academy, we talk about you know epistemologies, how we know what we know. We have to make actual social uh, existential decisions around where we get our truth, what we consider to be highest forms of truth, the sources of our hope. Um, I think by and large, many Americans continue to look to um, sites of power uh, for that affirmation. I think that's happening even now, and I think that's a mistake. Oh, great. Uh, Alyssa has let me know that it's just about time to wrap up. I just want to mention one last comment uh, at, before we do that uh, Reverend Mike Angel mentioned that I think is really important in this context, which is that 
um, the very face of American religion is changing too. So many of the most active congregations um, in the United States today are immigrant congregations across a wide range of ethnicities and nationalities. And um, just really thinking through not only the changing face of other American social institutions and politics and everything else, but the very uh, face of religion and the dramatic uh, changes and transformations that we're seeing now and we'll continue to see you know, throughout the 21st century. Um, so thank you all again uh, so very much. And Alyssa, I will turn it back to you. As Dr. Griffith said, yes, thank you so, so much. This has been absolutely an incredible uh, meeting uh, discussion. Um, for those of you who have followed along in our series, I'd like to thank you for coming to our final series tonight. Um, I'd like to thank our panelists, Dr. Sanders, Dr. Espine, Rabbi Jill Jacobs. Um, and I would like to go back to a point that um, Rabbi Jacobs and um, Professor Griffith brought up earlier is that no one wants to leave home. And so uh, in just a few minutes, I'm going to read two uh, pieces of an incredibly powerful poem written by Warson Shire, a Kenyan-born Somali poet who wrote conversations about home at a deportation center. This was written in 2009 after visiting the abandoned Somali embassy in Rome, which had actually become home to a number of refugees. So as we wrap up tonight, um, feel free to sit in your emotions. Feel free to close your eyes, no one can see you, and sit with these words. You have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. No one burns their palms under trains beneath carriages. No one spends days and nights in the stomach of a truck feeding on newspaper unless the miles traveled mean something more than the journey. No one crawls under fences. No one wants to be beaten, pitied. I want to go home, but home is the mouth of a shark. Home is the barrel of a gun and no one would leave home unless home chased you to the shore unless home told you to quicken your legs, leave your clothes behind, crawl through the desert, wade through the oceans, drown, save, be hunger, beg, forget pride. Your survival is more important. No one leaves home until home is a sweaty voice in your ear saying, leave, run away from me now. I don't know what I've become, but I know that anywhere is safer than here. No one leaves home because they want to. So I ask you to take some of these incredible words from our leaders and, and use them to move you forward. And what does moving forward look like? Well, it means showing up to vote. It means volunteering with your local immigration agencies. It means showing up. It means helping. It means lending a hand. It means having curiosity. So I encourage you all to move forward and try to make our country whole. So with that, thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening and um, happy November 4th.